Well, good evening. It is good to see you all. I know we have a group down at Mel Trotter tonight, so be in prayer for them. Uh, Pastor Mike McClish is down there preaching tonight, so we are thankful for his willingness to do that and step in uh, to an important ministry. We are I just met a couple weeks ago, actually. Some things have changed at Mel Trotter, for those of you who know, and, and we were struggling to know where our place was going to be in that ministry. And so I met with the new director, or he's, he's director of training. I can't remember totally his title. I can't remember my title half the time, so I'm not worried about his title. But uh, he was one that uh, is in charge of helping us get on uh, to the campus there and to have a ministry there. And I was just... Uh, really concerned how we may fit into that ministry. Things are changing in a lot of ministries. And, and after meeting him, I was very, very thankful for the way that the, door is op- the Lord is opening up doors for us in that ministry. And so if that's a ministry that intrigues you, you're interested in, maybe just going once a quarter or uh, maybe less even or maybe more, uh, that you'd go once a month even, make sure you get all the paperwork done. That's a hassle, I know. Uh, it is trying to get, we're trying to make that easier, but should the Lord lead you into that ministry, don't let paperwork stand in the way and get that done. And uh, it's a blessing to be there. We're encouraged because we probably be changing a few things up because the way that they do dinner and so forth, and that way we get a more captive audience. Uh, when it's been an hour after dinner and everybody goes to their rooms and they're in for the night, it's hard to drag them back out on a Sunday night. So uh, we'll, we may be changing a few things that go along with that, uh, but I think they should have a great ministry down there tonight. So be in prayer for Pastor Mike as he's uh, preaching on this evening, and Dave is leading some of the music, and so just praise the Lord for open doors there. Turn your, in your Bibles to the book of Ruth, starting chapter 3. I want you, if uh, you're married or uh, you think back to that time of an engagement, maybe you said no. Uh, if you're the woman, you said no. Uh, I, I want to reflect on one of those situations for just a minute, and then I'll reflect on a f- more fond one, the fond one for me, at least, our own, Lisa and I's own uh, engagement period and that, that moment of becoming engaged and, and some of my early, young, youthful faux pas uh, that were part of that process. But I'm going to reflect on one poor young guy for just a moment because that is, there's a lot of risk, isn't there? Men who've proposed, uh, there's some risk. You planned for it, you prepared for it, and you're pretty sure she's going to say yes, but she still has to say yes. And so there's a lot of risk that goes into that process. And I remember we had, uh, one of my sons and I had been given tickets to the Bulls game in the United Center in Chicago. And so we were at the Bulls game and it was uh, halftime, whatever they call that. It was between quarters, whatever. And we were watching the game, and uh, there's a lot going on. And all of a sudden, the lights dim in the entire house, and there's a spotlight on the center of the, the basketball court. And out comes one sheepish young man out to the center, and he comes out to the middle, and uh, he gets there to the middle, and on the screen pops up the lady's name, Will You Marry Me? And he's down on one knee there in the middle. And the camera zooms over to him, or over to her rather, and she's going, oh, every guy in that place went, oh. (laughs) 
is all this time, energy, and money, and she says no. And she ran from the arena in tears. And now he's standing in the middle of the court going, what in the world did I just do? It was a, a gut-riching scene and a hilarious scene all at the same time. The hilarious part of me is the, the more uh, brutal side of me. And I thought, you should have known better before you spent all this money uh, to do all this and all this energy and effort. Uh, but then there's the other side, the high reward side. And I remember when uh, Lisa and I were getting close to that stage in our relationship, we were actually driving back and forth. We were in school in Kansas City and her parents were in Colorado Springs and we had been back for uh, a spring break or something, that early spring event. And so uh, we left, we were all at her aunt's house and every opportunity, as a young man, you're looking for that opportunity to ask dad for his daughter's hand. And so every opportunity, I'm trying to to navigate, to find that moment where I can pull dad apart and, and say, you know, I really have a question to ask you. And nothing ever came. So we get in the car. <laughs> Lisa's smiling over here as, as I say this. We get in the car. We start heading back to Kansas City. I hadn't asked him. And she says, did you talk to my dad? No, you couldn't do Zoom calls. You know, that was well before Zoom. You couldn't do Zoom calls. And I'm like, no, I never had the chance. She goes, we need to turn the car around. So I turn the car around, go back to Aunt's house. I knock on the door, and she's got a very large family, and several of them were at the house. I knock on the door, and fortunately, this aunt really, really liked me. So uh, she welcomed me in, and and I went up to my future father-in-law, and I said, can I ask you a question out on the front porch? Every ear in the house heard that. And they all go to the windows, big picture windows. I take him out on the front step, and I'm you know, wringing my hands together, and I'm nervous, and I'm sweating. And Aunt Sharon, who's with the Lord now, one of Lisa's aunts, demanded everybody get off the window. Go sit down, let him have his time. And I asked for Lisa's hand there, and uh, he was very gracious in saying yes, real quick. He uh, didn't make me suffer, didn't hurt me in any way, <laughs> uh, didn't make me promise anything. And so I went back inside. I'm like, Lisa, we got to go. And we took off back towards uh, Kansas City. And so obviously she knew it wasn't going to be a surprise. So that summer I knew because she knew that we were going to have to do something special. So that summer, I was up at my parents' cabin, and near my parents' cabin is a meadow uh, that's uh, it's kind of hard to get to. And so I took Lisa out for a walk, and when we came back down, as you're coming back down the driveway, the meadow opens up in front of you. You can't see it going the other way, but when you come back the other way, it opens up in some trees, and there on uh, a roll where they have wire, and they unroll the wire, uh, that, was, that spool was my table where on the table was a rose and the ring and I asked her to marry me there. My parents had set that up while we were gone. And unlike that poor fellow on the basketball court at the Bulls, uh, she said yes. And uh, obviously, uh, 23 years of marriage later, here we are. And so we praise the Lord for both examples because they are very important for our narrative this morning. 
or this evening, sorry. Uh, we're jumping into Ruth chapter 3, and I want us to read the text here because a lot is going on and a lot of cultural things that you and I in our English-thinking American ways don't understand. And so we're going to dig into it, and we're really building up for next week, this crescendo to next week where we're going to understand how it's all going to shake out and the work that a kinsman redeemer is going to do. But we begin in chapter 3, verse 1, where the scripture says, Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak, and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, All that you say I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. Then when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went down to lie at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. Midnight the man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, Who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And he said, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, in that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. Let us ask the Lord's blessing on our time in his word. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we are thankful for the text that is before us tonight, the fond memories of uh, the proposals we have been a part of, and now we reflect on this dramatic proposal, very different from the culture that we live in. And yet there are significant and important truths that we need to glean tonight from this narrative as it unfolds. Lord, we praise you for this real-life encounter between two people who were growing in their love for each other, but desired to make you central to that relationship. I pray that in our own relationships, we would emulate the lessons learned between Ruth and Boaz. That in our children's relationships, we would encourage them for this same kind of behavior and practice of godliness and purity. But that we would also recognize the grander story of what is unfolding here. The greater picture and the wonder of the truth of the redemption that we have because of our kinsman redeemer who is Christ. Lord, we praise you that the love story shared between Ruth and Boaz is a love story that far greater is demonstrated to us in the way that Christ loves us and gave himself for us that we may be redeemed. So Lord, the theme of the morning hour that we were together and the theme of the evening hour now is the same, the Redeemer. And our attention is focused on Christ and we give you the glory and the honor for the time we can spend in your word tonight. Give me the words to speak that they would be from you. Give us hearts to listen as we unfold and unpack this narrative to see the layers of your mercy and kindness to this couple being dis displayed before our very eyes. Lord, we love you and we thank you for it. We ask all these things in the name of Christ. Amen. This evening we are, the message title is Midnight at the Threshing Floor, and it is unique. There's a lot of unique cultural elements that we're going to see, odd questions that come from this text, and it really does help us set up for next week, Lord willing, as we will see the role of the kinsman redeemer unpacked for us. 
But as we do so, there are several elements we're going to draw out, and we're going to follow the narrative. And so in your bulletin, you have just four points. I didn't fill in any of the detail because I wanted you to have liberty to write on what other things come to mind, to not be so worried about filling in the blanks as perhaps you are about listening to what the Lord is doing in the events that unfold before us. And so as we do, uh, as we just have the four points, there's blanks, but it's very short, be thinking of what the Lord is teaching us through the rest of the narrative that's not necessarily illustrated in the point, but does show us the mercy of God, the grace of God, the loving kindness of God, as illustrated through Ruth and Boaz and the biblical narrative that unfolds around them. And so tonight we begin with Naomi's involvement. Naomi's involvement. And we start here in verses 1 through 5. This is half of the text that we'll study tonight. And we've read through it, but I want to start again in verse 1. It says, Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? Naomi here takes action right off and begins to do something that culturally we say that seems to be a bit odd. The events of this chapter are those which are not natural for you and I, because we're not in the culture. We don't understand it. And honestly, I think part of what is unfolded for us is neither does Ruth. Remember, Ruth is a Moabite. She understands some of the principles of the law, as we've clearly seen evidence in her already, she desires to follow after the God of Israel. She's, remember, all the way back to chapter 1, already told Ruth, or already told Naomi, rather, that the God of Naomi is Ruth's God, and Ruth has been more faithful to the one true God than Naomi had been. And so Ruth is taking this very, very seriously, but she's just now learning some of the habits and customs, and the whole role of being a widow in that culture is all brand new to her. And so we learn along with Ruth as she's learning some of these elements. There's going to be customs that we simply do not understand, at least on the surface. We're going to dig deeper into those so we can begin to understand what God is doing in His grace and mercy in between some of the lines that we may see. By the time chapter 3 begins, we remember where we left off in chapter 2. Chapter 2, we have the barley and the wheat harvests coming to a conclusion, six to eight weeks where there has been the everyday Ruth out in the fields gleaning, Boaz probably spending more and more time out at the fields, Boaz's workers recognizing the command of Boaz to leave more and more grain for Ruth, and they certainly saw things going on. They saw the attraction. They saw them drawing together. They noticed the time that they would spend walking together. They noticed the time they'd spend talking together. And there was certainly evidence of a relationship budding to the point of marriage. But it is a challenge because Ruth is a widow. And Ruth has, recognizes, or at least we've been told, that Boaz is the kinsman redeemer. How much of that Ruth understands, we're not told. If there is another individual who's involved, which we know that there is, because we've read ahead, but we know that there's another individual who is closer who could be the kinsman redeemer. Whether Ruth knows that at the beginning of chapter 3 or not, we don't know. We do know that Naomi is going to plan ahead for it. 
And that's what we're going to see as the text unfolds. The workers leaving grain behind at Boaz's instruction, Ruth kept bringing home far more than a gleaner should have gathered in a single day. And Naomi, along with the workers, notices, hey, I'm starting to see Boaz a lot around here. There is more going on than a landowner and a gleaner. There is something going on between the two of them. But now, as we come into chapter 3, the harvest is coming to an end. The barley has been harvested, the wheat has been harvested, and it is sitting on the threshing floor waiting for the winnowing fork to finish its work. And Naomi takes action. On the surface, look at the question that she asks in verse 1. Verse 1 says, Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? Modern translation, Ruth, it's time for you to get married. And I think I know the guy. And I'm going to set you up with the guy. It's time to get married. That is the modern translation of what is going on. It, however, for you and I, that seems as if it was meddling. As if there was a lot going on there that's maybe passive-aggressive that is unfolding in the chapter. But I don't believe that that is the case. In fact, I'm certain that it is not. It's not unusual in those times for wedding plans to be worked out between the mother and the daughter in what was referred to simply as the mother's chambers. Does that sound familiar? We spoke of the mother's chambers back in chapter 1. Back in chapter 1, remember when Naomi says to her two daughters-in-law, go back to your mother's house. Why not back to her father's house? Back to your mother's house. And remember, we studied at that time in chapter 1, where what Naomi was saying is, you're young, you have your whole life ahead of you, go back to your mother's house and let her arrange another marriage for you. That is what Naomi has said to her daughters-in-law, who are widows, and she's sending them back. And remember, Orpha was one that did that. She went back to her mother's house, so another wedding would be arranged between the daughter and the mother, and a, a possible suitor would be selected. Since Naomi was more like a mother to Ruth at this point, we certainly see this relationship. And since Ruth didn't have a mother in the Jewish culture, it is Naomi who takes on the matchmaking responsibilities. And so Naomi says, I have a responsibility to help you find a suitor. Consider the grace of God to this point. And we've highlighted it already, especially last week, where Naomi said, I'm no longer Naomi, I'm Myra. Call me Myra. I'm bitter. Now Naomi is saying, I see God at work, and there's a kinsman redeemer, and I'm going to set you up with him. It's time to get married, Ruth. Acting in this role, given the last several weeks before this event occurs, the time to act is now. After harvest, after the winnowing is done, the threshing is done, and, and the winnowing is completed, when they would see each other again, we're not sure. Probably not for another 10 months before back to the fields they would go. And so 
it's time to act. There was no doubt what Naomi is up to. And if you had any doubt of what she's up to, read verse 2. She says this, is not Boaz our relative? (laughs) Ding, ding, ding. I'm going to set you up with your husband. And by the way, your husband's name, you already know him, is Boaz. And Boaz is the one. Isn't he our relative with whose young women you were? See, he was winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Naomi has done her homework. She knows where Boaz is going to be. She understands what's about to take place, and she understands not only where he is and what's about to happen, but she understands who he is and that he is the kinsman redeemer and that his relationship with Ruth has begun to come closer and closer and closer. Naomi certainly understands that there, whether Ruth understood it or not, we don't know, but Naomi certainly understood that there was a kinsman redeemer closer. And yet she is setting up the relationship with Boaz and Ruth. According to Old Testament law, a widow could actually demand that the next closest relative be, uh, who was available would be the one who would marry her. In fact, we see evidence of this pre-law. This comes uh, before all of the law had been given to Moses, uh, but we see it in Genesis chapter 38. And that's probably the chapter that gives us some negativity to the idea of a kinsman redeemer because you have Judah and Tamar and Judah's two sons are evil and the Lord takes both of their lives, the scripture says. And Tamar is left without a child in the name of the first son of Judah. And so she insists on marrying the third son who's too young at that point to get married. But she insists upon it, and when Judah doesn't fulfill his obligations, then she takes matters into her own hands, which was not a biblical example, but it does show you, I mean, it is in Scripture, but it's not a godly example, but it does show you that she did have legal rights, and Judah admits that, that she did have legal rights to raise up an heir in the name of her first husband. And so that is the right that was passed on not only from Genesis 38 as the nation of Israel was beginning to be formed, but also then carried on through the Levitical law. And now Naomi is going back to that example and building upon it. And we understand that there's reasons for this. It was God's plan for the marriage to provide the widow with her financial security because now she could retain the property and the assets of her husband, and have an heir in which all of the property and the rights and the privileges of heirship would go on in the name of her husband's name. In fact, the child would be named after the first husband so that the line would continue even though she would be married to another. Furthermore, any child born to them would be given all of the benefits despite the kinsman redeemer's value The child that was born to this union would be the child that would receive, the male child would receive all of the property rights that were the widow's, but since she couldn't own or possess land according to the law, the kinsman redeemer would bring that in, he would cultivate, he would maintain, and he would operate the land and the assets, and then when the child between he and the one that he has redeemed is old enough, that gets passed on to that child. So there's a penalty. There would be a cost, potentially, to taking on 
a widow who was a relative's wife. And so uh, we recognize that the process was God's plan for providing financial security and to secure the name of every family in Israel for another generation, and all of the family assets would re- remain within that family line. In Deuteronomy, if you want to read more on this idea and how it fits into the Levitical law, Deuteronomy chapter 25, verses 5 through 10, gives us a bigger picture of this kinsman-redeemer law. Naomi is aware of it. And so Naomi is practicing, and she begins to provide some instruction then to Ruth. And by the way, before I get there, notice what she's already said. We could do this now or later, so I'll just jump into it. Boaz is going to be at the winnowing of the barley, and so we need to understand that. We've talked about threshing. Now let's talk about winnowing. The threshing floor was typically just a spot in the dirt, and they would move all the rocks out to the edges, and it would be a flat place. Maybe it would be uh, something that they've put stones together and kind of a concrete mix in between to hold them together, but often it was just a, a nice, flat, solid place of ground, and it was at the top where they could uh, winnow, throw, that is to throw the grain up into the air, and the chaff would blow away. So that's what the floor was. And so they would bring in animals, and they would smash down and grind the chaff off of the seed kernels. And, and sometimes they would use more mechanized, like the animals would actually drag something through. Other times it would just be the hooves of the animals walking through. And then they would, the winnower would come, and they would have a, a giant fork often, and, or like a pitchfork, but a big version, kind of a difference between a lawn rake and a pitchfork, and co- combine those two together, and you get a winnowing fork. And the winnowing fork, they would drop down, they would pick it up, and they would throw it straight up in the air. All the chaff, all of the stalks would blow away, and the heavier grain would settle back down. And when this took place, it was celebration. When the winnowing was done, this was celebration. All the hard work of planting, all the hard work of caring for and tending those tender plants through to the harvest is now being completed. This is the same idea, if you ever noticed, and I'm sure you have, that county fairs are always after harvest times. It's the same principle. We celebrate at the county fair the harvest coming in. And whether that's livestock or whether that's grain or whatever it is, it's always after, specifically in our country, it's after the wheat harvests. And that was the way it was there as well. So what is going on at the threshing floor is the work of winnowing. And that work of winnowing, the, uh, the grain is being thrown up into the air. The grain is settling down. The chaff is being blown away. And there's a grand celebration of all that is unfolding in these few moments. And Naomi knows that tonight is the night that the winnowing is going to be complete and the celebration is going to ensue. She seems to have been planning this proposal for some time. It's not like one day she said, you know what, I think the harvest is coming to an end. I wonder if Ruth has asked him to be her kinsman redeemer. Naomi's not leaving anything to chance, and she knows well in advance. She's been planning for this. And so as she notices the relationship between Ruth and Boaz getting closer, and as she notices that Ruth hasn't broached the subject with Boaz, and Boaz hasn't broached the subject with Ruth, Naomi says, I tell you what, tonight's the night. 
I'm going to schedule all this out, and it was all set for weeks in advance, I'm sure. She knows Boaz will be threshing the barley, and the celebration at the end of the harvest is going to be commencing. And so she gives specific instructions. Notice the practicality. I love it when Scripture is extremely pragmatic. It's extremely pragmatic in this moment. Notice what she says, verse 3. Wash, therefore. That's probably a good idea. Uh, If you walked any distance this evening on the way into church, you know why that's a good idea. I stepped outside after the meeting here, and I thought, what happened to fall? Like yesterday was 70-some degrees. I'm thinking, you know what? In a day or two, if it keeps this up, we may have to have more bonfires or some kind of heat in the house. Maybe we bake bread or something. And then I walked out after today, after the meeting. I'm like, wow, that's our first false fall. And we'll probably get four or five more of those before it's all said and done. And we're back to summer real quick. Well, uh, this is pragmatic. Verse 3, wash therefore and anoint yourself and put on your cloak and go down to the threshing floor, but do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. It's very pragmatic. Her instruction is to get ready. Go take a shower, put on the perfume. J. Vernon McGee at this point calls this the scent that is entitled Midnight in Moab. That's her favorite scent. That's what McGee says. Uh, Put on your best dress. Likely, and this is an interesting statement, likely the best dress that Ruth has the last time she wore that dress was in Moab with her previous husband. So there's a a bit of sobriety here as well. The Hebrew verb signifies when when verse 3 begins, wash therefore, we think of, okay, go take a shower. and, And that is true, but the verb signifies the full treatment. Everything that she could possibly do. So she got a, we understand that I'm being a little bit facetious in this statement, but she got a manicure and a pedicure. She couldn't afford that, but uh, she did take care. The, The picture is that she did everything she possibly could do. And that's what this verb means, or this idea of wash, therefore, means that she went out and got a a manicure and a pedicure, and the Mary Kay lady came over to the house and arranged all of the colors for the, the makeup and her dress to match, and she went all out. That's what we have going on, and that's what she's been told to do. The harvest is always a time of celebration, and we know that the conditions in the nation of Israel have not been good. Remember, Naomi and Elimelech had left Bethlehem 10 years earlier because of the harsh, brutal conditions of living in the land of Israel. And now, after having returned, she returns because the grass is now still greener in Bethlehem, but it was very dark in Moab because of the loss of her husband and her two sons. Now she's coming back. We don't know exactly what sort of situation they would find themselves in as far as are the Midianites still attacking? Remember we said this could have been in the time of Gideon and the Moabites or the, uh, the Amalekites or in this case the Midianites who were with Gideon, if, how they were attacking. But we know both groups were attacking. We know that this was a very difficult time in the nation of Israel. And so can you imagine, we don't know how many harvests there have been, but can you imagine the celebration of a bountiful harvest that the Midianites haven't taken yet? There would be great celebration. And that is what Ruth is preparing for. 
There's great celebration going on. There are those, and we come to verse 4, and it says, But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies, and then go in and cover his feet and lie down, and I will tell you what to do. There are those who think that Ruth is told to go down and proposition Boaz sexually for something. Um, that uncovering his feet must be some kind of euphemism. But nothing could be further from the truth. The context of the narrative tells us what's going on. The context is she is to wake him up by uncovering his feet. And indeed, that's what happens. The context, as we know, is that Boaz is a godly man and has already demonstrated that to Ruth and caring for Ruth and protecting Ruth. And in a few verses, he's going to praise Ruth for her moral character. That's where we're going to end tonight is the high esteem for Ruth's moral character. Hardly fitting if she had just asked him to violate God's moral standards. We also know that in the Mishnah, this is the commentary on Jewish customs and laws, that a man was forbidden to act as a kinsman redeemer toward a Gentile woman that he had already been sexually involved with. So it would be a violation of the law had he asked to be or had she asked him to be kinsman redeemer if this had any improprietary elements involved with it whatsoever. This was obviously, the, the law was obviously to protect a vulnerable widow from being abused or taken advantage of. And we see that character in Boaz. He has caused her to only glean in his fields where she would not be molest, molested or harassed. And he is going to draw out those truths again when he celebrates the moral character of this Moabite woman. According to Jewish custom and law, if a potential kinsman redeemer did not redeem the widow, he also forfeited the right to her former husband's property as well. And so all of that becomes very important as we understand what the Mishnah says about Jewish customs and law. And so we know Naomi has gotten involved. She's given some instructions. Ruth, do yourself up and go down to the threshing floor and wait until Boaz has completed all of the tasks of celebration and then go to him. We're going to highlight some of that here as we recognize that Ruth now takes action. Ruth does what she's been instructed, verses 6 and 7. And the scripture says, So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. There's an interesting phrase here, and I wanted to highlight it just a little bit and kind of keep your appetite wet for uh, Israel. Uh, if you're in Bethlehem and you're looking at the fields of Boaz, there's a phrase here that's very important. Remember what I said that the threshing floor was on top of the hills. Well, what is said here is very interesting that she went down to the threshing floor. Well, Samuel obviously missed it. He didn't understand. No, if you're standing in Bethlehem and you're looking across the valley towards the fields of Boaz, they are lower than Bethlehem. The hills come right outside of the fields of Boaz and there's two standalone hills, one on each side, of the fields of Boaz, and those tops of the hill in the middle of this valley are the highest point in the middle of the valley, but they are lower than Bethlehem. So it is fascinating that Samuel would even get this detail right. Even this minutia, 
Samuel gets right. And so Ruth takes action. She obeys her mother-in-law and she goes down to the threshing floors. And some, again, we recognize that there is a group that is hostile to the biblical narrative and they just can't leave it alone. And so those who say, well, we'll see there was something going on, some, some indiscretions that were happening, they now try to say that Ruth is taking advantage of a drunken Boaz when they come to this point. See, it says in the text that he uh, ate, verse, uh, verse, let's back up to verse 4, it's when he lies down, observe the place where he lies down, then go and cover his feet and so forth. And then in verse 7, and when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, they say, ah, see right there, you have a drunken Boaz. Well, it's possible that he did drink wine. We're, I'm not going to debate that, but I don't believe he's drunk. The term that's used here, the Hebrew idiom, is yatab lib. Yatab lib. Yatab lib means that he was in good spirits. doesn't mean that he was out of his mind. It means that he was in good spirits. And wouldn't you be? You've just harvested all of your grain. It's all been winnowed out, and you're sitting by piles of grain that you perhaps had not seen in years. And everyone, women and children, the entire town has come out to celebrate the bountiful harvest. And we see part of what Naomi is doing because Boaz probably is keeping records and she instructs Ruth to not bother Boaz until he is laid down to sleep. He's probably keeping the books. We brought in this much, we've celebrated, but Boaz seems to be a man of industry. And after a bumper crop, Boaz's heart is lightened. The burden of the debt, perhaps, that has been accumulating, the burden of the stress of the Midianites is gone, or whoever was stressing him out, it doesn't matter what time it was in. And any time that the nation of Israel had finally returned to the things of the Lord, there was bountiful harvest. And when they rejected the things of the Lord, there was... Uh, abject famine. Boaz is celebrating bountiful harvest. And after a bumper crop and a good harvest, Boaz would have certainly been in a good mood, and he is laid down to sleep. Now, the way that he is sleeping is also something that is important. Boaz has stuck his feet out and his head towards the grain. So he's sleeping, protecting the grain. He's not leaving the grain. That alludes to the fact that there's still problems. Not all is well in Israel. The fact that Boaz didn't just say to his workers, you guys lay here, protect the grain, I'm going home. He doesn't say that. Boaz sleeps there with the grain and an effort to protect the grain and also in the celebration of everything that has taken place. And so that gets to us the set of the scene where Ruth is now about to propose. Yes, I said that right. Ruth is going to propose. Uh, Again, culturally different. In the middle of the night, uh, notice as we come back to verse 8. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. He hadn't noticed that up to this point. The, The phrase here, at midnight, literally means, some of your translations may say in the middle of the night. Uh, What it means is midnight. The the portion of the evening that is, it's well past, Boaz has probably been asleep for some time, and it's now getting cold, and it is what we would call midnight. 
And then some of your translations say that he shifted or that he was startled. I don't think either one of those are very good translations in the context of what's going on. Because something has happened. He was startled, yes, but the word also means that he shivered awake. It can mean any of those three, that he was startled or that he shivered, that he stirred awake. One of those three it can mean, and I think it means in this context, even though the translators have translated it, perhaps in your version they translated it shivered, but most translate it here as he was startled or that he was shaken awake or some variation of that. And it's likely that Boaz is sleeping, as he, we know he was sleeping, as he's sleeping, it's likely that Ruth slips in after he's fallen asleep and removes the blanket from his feet. Probably the, the rest of their marriage, this is going to happen. Uh, it's just early on, blankets are going to leave that poor guy's feet every night uh, after marriage. So she takes the blankets and she's she's uh, huddled down at the ends of his feet. She's not touching him. She's not near him in that respect, but she has taken the blanket and is huddling at his feet. It's likely, this is where we struggle because there's a cultural difference. It's likely, and we understand this culturally, that she had come out of respect in the middle of the night, had come out of respect for his character because she is about to propose to him. And his answer could taint his character in the general population of Israel. How do we know? There's contextual evidence for that as well. I'll highlight it in just a moment. So she comes out of respect, likely comes out of respect for his character, not wanting to demand her rights publicly, not wanting to force him to have to make a decision before the elders at the city gates, which was her legal right to do. Ruth could have said, the day after the winnowing, or the day before the winnowing, Boaz, come with me, and took him down to the city gates and demand that she would be given the kinsman redeemer. She could have demanded that. And the kinsman redeemer would have had the choice to say yes or no, but if he said no, he would lose reputation and status in the community for not adhering to the law of the kinsman redeemer. And so Ruth is very gracious in giving him an out to not have to answer publicly, but to answer privately. That poor guy who asked that poor woman to marry him on the middle of the floor of the United Center in Chicago probably should have followed this lesson. <laughs> probably should have been paying attention and doing this without everybody else around. And it's even likely that Naomi, and certainly I believe Naomi, already knew that there was another man in front of Boaz for kinsman redeemer. So how do I know that she was seeking to protect the reputation of Boaz? Because fast forward to next week, Lord willing, Boaz is going to confront the closer redeemer. And do we know his name? No, we do not know his name. But you know the name of Elimelech, the rebellious man who drug his family to Moab against the law. But you don't know the kinsman redeemer 
who could have been the kinsman redeemer. What does that say about him over Elimelech or over Ruth or Boaz or any of the other figures that have appeared in the narrative? So we recognize that there's one man who has the first right of refusal, and I believe that is why Naomi had Ruth approach Boaz the way that she did. And notice, we recognize that there is the instruction of what he should do or what she should do. Verse 4 says, But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies, then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. Leave the rest up to Boaz, Ruth, because he if he loves you, we'll already have had a plan. Naomi understands what's going on. We'll see that as we finish here in just a few moments. But as we do so, notice her words when Boaz wakes up, verse 9. He says, who are you? Remember, it's dark. There's not any street lights. Uh, and she said, who are, And he said, who are you? And she said, I am Ruth. Your servant, spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. I believe that Boaz knew who she was. But I think he's asking her, why are you here? By asking her, who are you? In other words, in what form are you coming to me? And when Ruth answers the way that she does, then his response is the way that it is. And we're going to get there in just a moment. So he knows that it's Ruth, but the question is, why are you really here? Are you coming to propose, or are you coming from, for some other reason? And Ruth takes Boaz's words. Did you catch it? If you've read the narrative before, you're like, I already know this, Pastor. But did you catch it? Notice what she says again in verse 9. Says, and he said, Who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. Does that sound familiar? Go back to chapter 2, verse 12. Remember the prayer that Boaz had prayed or committed to pray over Ruth. It's this The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, whose under whose wings you have come to take refuge. So Ruth says to Boaz, you are the answer to your own prayers. You are the one that God has sent to provide protection. And it's tantamount, what she is saying is tantamount to saying, in all of the law, in all of God's protection, in all that was granted to widows, Boaz you are my redeemer. Or put more in our terms, she says, Boaz, you are God's protection for me. Will you marry me? That's what she just said. Which was a critical step. Because until she had done so, remember, Boaz would have been wrong because there was a kinsman redeemer closer than Boaz to Ruth, and should he have moved towards Ruth and saying, I want you to marry me, she had to consent to that, and that would have given the other redeemer rights. And Boaz was not excited about giving him rights. Instead, Ruth has come to him and said, I want you, Boaz, to be the answer to your own prayers. It would have been 
improper for a woman under any other circumstances to ask for marriage. That was improper. Even though it was in the mother's chambers where marriages were arranged, it still would have been improper for the woman to do so. But remember, a widow in Israel, as we recognize from Deuteronomy chapter 25, and as we see in Tamar and Judah, a widow in Israel can insist on the kinsman redeemer fulfilling his obligations to his family, his kinsmen. And so we say, wow, this is great, but this is the moment. This is the spotlight moment. All eyes are on, even though there's no eyes in the moment, but all eyes are on Ruth and Boaz. And notice how Boaz responds. We're going to end here, verse 10. And he said, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. Boaz responds, and his first response, there's two elements to it, two sides to it. The first is, May you be blessed by the Lord. And in case you're wondering, that's a whoop of celebration. Like, absolutely, yes. I've been waiting all this time. But Boaz knows that there's another kinsman in the way. And immediately he's going to talk about that. So in this whoop of celebration, this celebratory, may you be blessed by the Lord, he also does something that we now recognize as the character of Boaz. We saw it earlier and we're seeing it now. He takes this moment and he praises God for the virtuous woman named Ruth. He praises God for her. This is a a man who loves the Lord and loves to serve the Lord in a land that hates the Lord and has rebelled against the Lord. Given the events of the next few verses, Boaz is not taken off guard by this proposal. Notice, we're going to build to it next week, but notice what he says In verse 11, he says, And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask, for all my my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman, verse 12, and know that it is true that I am a redeemer. Yet, there is a redeemer nearer than I. Now, mind you, Boaz has just been woken up because his feet are cold. How many of you are fully cognizant when you wake up and move the blankets around? Isn't this fascinating? Boaz was waiting for this conversation. He wasn't trying to get the wheels going in the middle of the night and say, oh, this is great. He already knows. He's already set it up, at least the plan forward. And the only obstacle to this point had been Ruth insisting that he fulfill his kinsman redeemer role. It's also important, as we recognize what's going on here, it's important to recognize that Boaz is praising the Lord for the morality of Ruth. She could have, as a Gentile woman, outside of the law, could have pursued any of the young men who were in the fields. But he says, you did not. And this act of coming to Boaz in fulfillment of the law was a key character trait of the moral nature of Ruth. And Boaz calls it out. 
Husbands and wives, I think there's a challenge here for us, and then I'm going to talk to young, young people who are not yet married. Um, husbands and wives, cherish and foster holiness in your spouse. Cherish and foster godliness to be lived out in your spouse's life. Boaz certainly relished in this relationship because of the virtue of Ruth. Young people who are not yet married or thinking about marriage at some point down the road, look for people, a spouse, who is virtuous, who can identify biblical virtue, and who cherish biblical virtue. Look for a spouse who celebrates righteousness. Ruth and Boaz are examples of two young people who did. As we move on, we recognize that there is a big obstacle. The big obstacle yet to come is there's another kinsman redeemer. And will that kinsman redeemer redeem Ruth or will it fall to Boaz to redeem Ruth? That's the question we're left with as we leave off tonight. But we highlight a few elements, and I hope that you caught the grace of God at work in Ruth and Boaz. I hope you also caught the great love that our kinsman redeemer has for us, because our kinsman redeemer loves us with perfect, holy, righteous love, devoid of sinful ambition, devoid of selfishness, that while we were yet enemies, Christ would die for us. That's how your Savior loves you. That's how your kinsman redeemer loves you. And not only did he die for you, but he rose again, victorious over sin and death. We're going to learn more about the kinsman redeemer. We've just set the stage. This is kind of like that early building to the climax. What's going to happen? You know, because you've read the text. We're going to dive into it, Lord willing, next week. And we're going to see how God prepares for Ruth and Boaz to be the grandparents of King David and the line of King Jesus. Let's close in a word of prayer. Lord, we are thankful for what we have seen and witnessed tonight in the book of Ruth. Lord, there's a lot for us to unpack and a lot we simply do not understand because in our culture we are very different. We praise you that we are not under the law but under grace. And because of that, we are not adhering to these elements of the law, but we do praise you as well that even if we are not adhering to these, not required to do so, that we still glean the richness of your love demonstrated through Ruth and Boaz to us. Lord, I praise you that the picture of a kinsman redeemer is a picture that is clear and concise for us. And as was my prayer this morning, it continues to be my prayer that if there's any among us or in our hearing that do not know you as Savior, that they will come to understand what their Redeemer has bought for them. That they will accept Christ's free gift of salvation. They will receive it, that they will believe, that they will follow after you. As we studied in the Thessalonian church, that they'll turn to you away from the idols that they have been serving. 
Lord, we thank you for the imagery that we get from the book of Ruth, seeing even the minute details of the threshing floor being laid out accurately and 100% true before our eyes. Lord, I praise you as well that your word deals with the pragmatic elements, the elements that could have been skipped over in the narrative, but instead were given to us in detail of Ruth readying herself to meet her kinsman redeemer. Lord, as we continue in this study in the weeks to come, we ask your blessing upon our time in your word. We pray now that we'd put into practice what we have learned tonight, that we'd be encouraged and enthused about the future, and that your name would be glorified in all that we do and say as we depart from here. Lord, we praise you for a great day, a day that's been filled with a meeting, services, and a day that we walk out of here with great joy in the unity that we have in the body of Christ. Lord, we love you, and we thank you for all of these things. And it's in Christ's name that we do pray them. Amen.